from the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta, welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. Our scholar in residence, Chris Holmes, kicked off a sermon series, an educational series, for this season of Lent called Remember Me, Jesus, Meals, and the Calling of the Church. And each week we're going to look at a text from uh, the scriptures where the action revolves around a meal, where the main action revolves at a table. To that end, we have Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. It can be found on page 62 in your pew Bible if you'd like to follow along with that, or if you brought your own Bible, you're welcome to follow along as I read. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And a woman in the city, who was a sinner, having learned that he was eating in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster jar of ointment. She stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to bathe his feet with her tears and to dry them with her hair. Then she continued kissing his feet and anointing them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw it, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what kind of woman this is who's touching him that she's a sinner. Jesus spoke up and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. Teacher, he replied, speak. A certain creditor had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debts for both of them. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the greater debt. And Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but, but she's bathed my feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she's not stopped kissing my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which were many, have been forgiven. Hence, she has shown great love. But the one to whom little is forgiven loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. But those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, break open uh, this ancient word afresh to us this day so that it may be in our time and in our moment, this very hour, your word to us, that 
you would speak through these frail human words and that we all would hear something of your good news, something of what you want us to hear to change us, transform us, mold us, shape us, send us to be more like your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Uh, Though the intensity and the volume may vary from person uh, to person, I think it's safe to say that every single one of us has an inner critic. Every single one of us has an inner critic. Uh, Popular psychology has made this concept common, although it does have its roots uh, in the academic psychology of Freud's superego and Jung's active imagination. The inner critic, we're told, is formed in our childhood, and it grows stronger and becomes more solidified as we reach early adolescence. And it typically, the inner critic's voice, typically takes the voice of someone in our life who has authority over us. It typically sounds like the voice of someone who has authority over us. And the inner critic lives in our conscience and our subconscious and is principally a voice of criticism, of judgment, and of demonization. It's important to note that the inner critic is first a voice of self-criticism. The inner critic is first a voice of self-criticism. British psychologist Abby Rawlinson on a recent blog post compiled some lines the inner critic is fond of saying and see if any of these resonate with you this morning. You're not good looking. You're not enough. Try harder. You're so lazy. You're not going to leave it like this, are you? You won't succeed unless you work harder. What will people think of you? Don't make a fool of yourself. You have no discipline. You will never change or break free from this. Don't even try. It's not worth it. What's the point? They will never forgive you. How could you have done that? You're so bad. You should have never been born. You're a failure. The inner critic starts with self-criticism, but doesn't stop there. It also directs its disparagement toward others. And it is not uncommon, and many of us know this to be true, that the criticisms we impose on ourselves are quite often the ones we frequently impose on others. The season of Lent began 11 days ago with our Ash Wednesday services, and we held uh, the noon service in the chapel. And about 12.05, during the opening hymn, a man walked into the chapel, came down the, the center aisle. He was carrying two duffel bags. He had multiple layers of clothes on. And he came to the chairs at the very front in the front of the first pew, and he sat himself there. As I looked at him, I assumed he was uh, traveling, perhaps living on the streets 
He was on Peachtree and he found his way into the service and he was most certainly welcome. Well, as the opening hymn continued, um, I left the chancel because I realized that he didn't have a hymnal. I brought mine to him. I opened it up to the page of the hymn. I introduced myself. He told me his name. I gave it to him and I said, I'm glad you're here with us this morning. And as the hymn ended, I was, I was tasked as the liturgist to, uh, to lead the next liturgical element, which happened to be the unison prayer of confession. So when the hymn concluded, I stepped back into the pulpit and I led the congregation and we began uh, to pray together. When all of a sudden the man got out of his seat and he started walking toward me, toward the chancel. And I wondered to myself as I'm leading this prayer, does he need something? Is he going to come up here? Is he dangerous? Is he okay? I kept praying the prayer with the congregation, and then in that moment, the man fell to his knees at the step, and he folded his hands. He put them to his mouth, and he bowed his head so that his forehead was touching the ground, and he started to pray. Now, a moment of transparency here. One of the voices of my inner critic is conformist in nature. My inner critic is the one that says, what will people think of you? Don't embarrass yourself. Everyone is watching. Not a great inner critic for a preacher. <laughs> and in that particular moment 11 days ago, the inner critic that I often impose on myself uh, was being imposed on this man. In that moment, I, I thought about what the other congregants and my colleagues were thinking about him. What is he doing? Does he know that he shouldn't be up here praying like that? Doesn't he know we're Presbyterians? Then, and I mean this sincerely, by God's intervention and grace, my inner critic went silent. And the voice of the Spirit spoke, Tony, let the guy do what he's got to do. Let him be. He's humbling himself, authentically responding to what I'm doing in his life. In fact, Tony, it wouldn't be so bad if you did the same. Here's the point. The criticisms we impose on ourselves are often the ones we impose on others. And that brings us to a fascinating feature of our text this morning. And I came to recognize and appreciate this feature through the insights of Yale New Testament scholar Michael Beth Dinkler, who invites us to pay a special attention to verse 39 of this text. And we'll get to verse 39 in just a, a moment, but I think it's important to note that this story, this particular story of this woman anointing Jesus' feet uh, shows up in all three synoptic gospels. That's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They each tell that story, this story. But Luke is the only one who has this particular feature from verse 39. 
Before we get there, by way of summary and, and by way of setup, remember that a man called Simon, a religious leader of Jesus' time, had invited Jesus to share a meal in his home. So Jesus is having a meal with this religious leader when all of a sudden a woman described literally in the Greek as a sinner of the city, a sinner of the city, entered the home. I assume that she wasn't invited. Even so, she comes in without saying a word. She cried. She wet Jesus' feet with her tears, dabbed them with her hair, kissed his feet, and then anointed them with a sweet-smelling perfume. And it's at that point in the action that this interesting feature of the story emerges. This is how it goes in verse 39. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw it, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. He said it to himself. He didn't say it out loud. What I'd like to suggest to you this morning is that what Luke is doing is allowing us to hear the voice of Simon's inner critic. That we're hearing the voice of Simon's inner critic. And it's important to note that Simon's inner critic is disparaging both of the woman and of Jesus. His inner critic disparages Jesus for not knowing better because a true prophet would know that they would never allow themselves to be touched by a woman like this. And Simon's inner critic disparages the woman by seeing her not as a daughter of Abraham, not as a child of God, not as one worthy of love, but nothing more, nothing less than the sum of her sins. Now follow me here. If it holds true that the inner criticisms we impose on ourselves are more times than not the ones we impose on others, then it stands to reason that Simon the Pharisee had criticized himself for not authentically living up to the religious standards he affirmed. Perhaps he rigidly and with hostility viewed himself as having value in God's eyes only if he was not like this woman, only if he was morally upright. If that's the case, maybe the inner critic kept playing in his mind saying, imperfection won't do, Simon. You got to be perfect. You got to hold the moral high ground, no room for failure, and no love from God, Simon. No love from the community, unless without fail, you maintain the standard. No love, no forgiveness, no mercy, unless, unless you ethically perform, unless you morally succeed. Th this has significant ramifications for our own lives, doesn't it? For the criticisms we so routinely and repetitively impose on others may in fact be the very ones the inner critic imposes on us. So what do you do about that? I wanna turn our attention to another subtle but powerful detail about the text. 
Right after Luke allows us to hear the voice of Simon's inner critic, Jesus said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. This, this part, just from a, a literary perspective, is absolutely brilliant, where you notice the contrast. Simon says something to himself, and then Jesus speaks up and says, I've got something to say to you. It's almost like you're listening to the inner critic. Now I want you to listen to me. Now I want you to listen to me. And it's as if Jesus can actually hear the inner critic that Simon is listening to, which of course makes sense because Jesus is God. That's another sermon. But that makes sense. And here's the truth, and perhaps it's going to be an unsettling one for us. Jesus knows the exact cadence, the exact rhythm, the vocabulary our inner critic loves to use. Jesus knows the voice of your inner critic. Jesus can hear it too. And as he did with Simon the Pharisee that day, Jesus is ready to say something different to you and to me. Jesus wants to unseat Simon's inner critic and replace it with his own voice, which is the very word of God. Simon, Jesus said, I have something to say to you. And he tells them this story. A certain moneylender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And for comparison in today's economic terms, it would be like the first person owing the bank $132,000 and the second person owing the bank 13200 Jesus went on. When they could not pay, the banker canceled the debts of both of them. Now, which of them will love him more? And Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the greater debt. And Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. And then Jesus turned to the woman, but he was still speaking to Simon. And he says, Simon, do you see this woman? Do, do, you, do you see her? When, when I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she's bathed my feet with her tears. You, you did not kiss me, and yet when I came in, she, she hasn't stopped kissing my feet. You did not anoint my head with, with oil, but, but she has anointed my feet with sweet-smelling perfume. Therefore, I say, her, her sins are forgiven. Hence, she has shown great love. And then Jesus said, but the one to whom little is forgiven loves little, and then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. But those who were at the table, says Luke, began to say among themselves, who is this that forgives sins? But he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now remember what I said earlier. Simon, the Pharisee's inner critic, was directed at both Jesus and the woman. He criticized Jesus for not being an authentic prophet, for not knowing better, and he criticized the woman for being a sinner. And what Jesus did here is demonstrate in this teaching that authentic prophecy, the true prophet, authentic faith, the true person of faith, authentic friendship with God will make itself known not in exclusion, but in welcome and in mercy 
and in forgiveness and in validating true devotion to God. What is more, Jesus sees this woman and he wants Simon to see her. He wants him to see her more than the sum of her sins. He wants him to see her as one who is deserving of mercy and grace and forgiveness, to see her as one to be celebrated and emulated for her devotion and love for Christ. One final interesting note. I think Jesus was inviting Simon to not only confront his inner critic, but to have Simon replace the voice of his inner critic with Jesus's words. The criticism that Simon imposed on Jesus and the woman was most likely the same one he imposed on himself. And Jesus, so interesting, in this parable, put both the woman and Simon in the story. This is very subtle. But he put both the woman and Simon in the story. There are two people that have a debt. One has a 500 denarii debt and the other 50. Make no mistake, both the woman and Simon are in debt. They need forgiveness. They're both sinners. Now, conventional wisdom would lead us to believe that it was the woman who owed 500 and that it was Simon that owed 50. After all, she was a sinner in the city and he was a religious leader. But what if, think about this, what if Jesus intended it to be the other way around? What if he intended it to be the other way around? What if in the parable it was Simon that had more to be forgiven? What if it was he who was the one who owed 500? What if Jesus wanted to see him as the one with the greater debt, metaphorically speaking, that he possessed it and not this woman? Perhaps the greater debt did belong to Simon because at least the woman knew she needed Jesus. Because at least she knew she needed Jesus, his mercy and forgiveness. She knew where she could find it, at his feet and in his voice, which was not critical but loving and gracious. And perhaps what Jesus is subversively doing here by celebrating her devotion and love, maybe he was saying to Simon, look, if she only owed 50 and she's doing this, how much more should you do because you owe 500? How much more should you do? This is how you should treat me when I enter your home. This is how you should welcome me because I welcome you and I love you and I'm here to save you and I'm, I'm here to give you a new life and I'm here to replace the voice of the inner critic with the very word of God which declares not judgment but grace, which says to you, Simon, that your sins are forgiven too. Friends, it's probably the case that the inner critic you impose on yourself is the same one you impose on others. There's no better time than the time of Lent by the power of the Spirit to allow the voice of the inner critic to be silenced and to be replaced by the word of God, which declares that you and I are loved, 
welcome, and forgiven. And may that good news stir in us a deeper devotion, a deeper adoration, a deeper love for Christ and what he has done and what he has declared. A devotion that was clearly demonstrated by this woman. A devotion which Simon was invited to embrace. A devotion that we are called to embrace too. Amen.